Continuing those partnerships that are created, understanding what we want locally. It's not just the tribal vision, but it's everybody who wants to assist in, in creating something better. And how can we how can we do it together? It's not really hard to see that, you know, Native people have been self-sustaining. We can go back and we can see that families were growing their own foods, hunting, gathering. This isn't something that is new to us. We have to re-educate our people. When, when we educate and then that education is retained, that's where empowerment comes from. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet for all. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. Today we're speaking with someone who truly exemplifies committing yourself to something in your life's work. Patrick Yawaki is on a path to address as many angles that move forward indigenous self-determination and empowerment as possible. I've witnessed Patrick in action, whether it's collecting voter ballots or shoveling soil for home gardens, and this is just a fraction of the work he's involved in. He makes overachievers look lazy. But he'll be the first to tell you that all of his work is made possible by partners, volunteers, and a collective team. Patrick lives on the Flathead Reservation in western Montana. Originally from Minnesota, Patrick is of Zuni Pueblo, Turtle Mountain Anishinaabe, Fort Peck Assiniboine Sioux, and White Bear Nakota Cree descent. Patrick and his wife, Regina Madplume, founded the People's Food Sovereignty Program, a native-led grassroots organization that promotes food sovereignty and self-determination for the tribal members living on the Flathead Reservation. Along with Alyssa Snow, he co-founded Red Medicine, LLC, which provides professional civic engagement resources to tribal communities everywhere. He also served as a lobbyist for the Blackfeet Nation in the 2021 Montana Legislative Session. Patrick is also a political director of Indigenous Vote, an organization based in Billings, Montana, which enhances the level of civic engagement for Native Americans to achieve political and economic empowerment. Patrick is also a father and all-around involved community member. Patrick spoke with us about his inspiring work, where he sees the greatest needs, and successful approaches that can apply to other grassroots community-led work. Well, first off, I'm a member of the Zuni Pueblo tribe out of New Mexico. Oh, that's on my father's side. On my mother's side, I'm Turtle Mountain Anishinaabe from North Dakota, as well as Fort Peck, Assiniboine Sioux, and White Bear, Nakota Cree, uh, which is out of Saskatchewan, Canada. You know, my tribal identity really kind of uh, molds um, who I am, my culture. You know, it's like a foundation to who, who I am and kind of, you know, what I've been sent on this earth to do, kind of. I think, uh, you know, having a multi-tribal background allows me to see, you know, kind of Turtle Turtle Island or North America in a multicultural lens that takes in, you know, uh, in my Zuni culture, agriculture is huge, you know, gardening and things like that, um, being sustainable out in the desert, you know, the arid desert and the resiliency behind that kind of, you know, what has driven me in terms of food sovereignty and understanding that background. Um, but on my mother's side, being Anishinaabe and Nakota and uh, Lakota that, there's a whole sense of um, community based around hunting lifestyles and um, sustainability and being involved politically on my mother's side uh, there's a lot of leadership uh, my grandfathers and my uncles 
sat on tribal councils. And so I've taken, you know, uh, both my father, father and mother's side, uh, both, both identities as a way to utilize um, understanding that I come from leadership. I, I come from communities who, who care about each other, care about food and sustenance and being able to be, you know, self-sustaining with disregard to like uh, supermarkets or anything like that, being an advocate for our needs, those types of things. And so understanding who I am to today, I've came to Montana to a tribal college and I graduated in 09 in tribal administration and governance, um, which is kind of a native political science degree focused on tribal leadership, uh, governance and policy and uh, have been using that degree to chase my goal, my goals and dreams really. And that includes food sovereignty or native civic engagement in you know, non-traditional local, state and federal governments. And so I think you know, my identity has been shaped by who, you know, who and where I come from. And that, you know, that has kind of laid out the path that I, I'm taking today. Thank you for sharing that. And can you tell us a little bit about the context of the community that you live in today and where we are having this conversation and what brought you here to become a part of this community? Yeah, so I moved here to go to uh, the Flathead Reservation, which has the Salish Kootenai College. This was in uh, 2016 where you know I met my, my wife and uh, Regina Madpoom, and we had... Uh, two children. She already had uh, a couple children herself, so I became a quick father right away. And now we have two beautiful children um, added to our family, and uh, it's been a blessing. I don't know. I kind of was just, you know, being in this. Uh, it's a tribal administration and governance program. It was. It's the first uh, cohort offered um, of this program in a in a tribal college setting, uh, and being located right across the street from their tribal governance building, I really had a good opportunity to get engaged with the community right away. That allowed me to get into um, certain uh, projects and things like that, such as Native Get Out the Vote, and that has uh, built a rapport with the community, tribal community here. It's a beautiful relationship that I have here. And can you tell me a little bit about the People's Food Sovereignty Program that you started up here in this community and kind of the need that you are seeing and the mission and the work of that program? So People's Food Sovereignty Program was created out of, you know, my whole college career was kind of based in this advocacy for a reforming or a, a change in the local food system here for the tribal community and was based on a, um, a series of community outreach that uh, a colleague of mine and I did that, you know, included local business owners, producers, food producers, local egg advocacy groups, tribal uh, leaders and department heads and kind of just really asked them, you know, what would they want and see in a localized food system? And including my education, I wanted to um, include focuses on a message and that message is um, that this is a reservation and that, you know, there's a lot of historical traumas that occurred to the, to the CSKT people here and definitely in terms of their food sovereignty and their, you know, lack of access to promises um, due to treaties influx of you know homesteading a lot of a lot of it is is grounded in broken treaties but you know the understanding that this is a reservation um, tribes have self-determination they have the ability to self-manage and kind of 
take the reins in terms of food sovereignty to know who's growing their food or who where the food comes from, um, how it's being processed, and is it being distributed to everybody? You know, there's there, you know there's programs that exist prior to people's food sovereignty program, and there's a gray area of people who don't um, get access to those food programs, even the food banks. You know, there's a lot of issue with tribal people having trust in non-tribal organizations. You know, historical traumas about signing documents and things like that. And there's a lot of paperwork that's required in, in participating in those local food banks. And something that People's Food Sovereignty Program has done is eliminated a lot of that paperwork. You know, we look like the community as well, you know, with the rapport that we have with our other efforts to, like, get out the vote and other things. You know, the, the tribal community has really um, understood that we care about them and that we're here for them. And so People's Food Sovereignty Program, in response to COVID, you know, after some efforts with uh, a, another organization here where we were distributing food to family members every week, we heard that tribal people wanted more traditional foods included in their distributions. And so uh, my wife and I created People's Food Sovereignty Program in response to some donated elk, uh, called elk, from the National Bison Range before it was transferred over from, to management, CSKT. And we participated in that program and we were able to distribute to over 77 homes on the reservation. From there, you know, we're just been implementing that the plan that um, I created at, at in college, different parts of it, and um, it, it's been very successful in terms of you know getting attention to the food insecurity that exists here, as well as you know the collaborations and partnerships that have been created with tribal and non-tribal entities. It's it's something that is every day. Just it's beautiful to see the people reaching out and and to know that. Those people that we are serving, you know, they they experience food insecurity every day, you know, and even though that this is something that's, you know, just for the season that we hope that can grow into something that sustains them throughout the year. That's really great. What a great program. And I know that, that all of this work entails a lot of different things. Um, I've seen just some of it myself. You guys work your tails off. Um, can you share all of the many things that this work looks like, you know, it's not only the dis- the food distribution, it's getting folks the tools and resources to grow their own food. Um, just kind of what are those different on the ground projects that the program is a part of? Yeah, so whenever you're designing a project or a program, you know, you have a planning session, you have to find your partners, and then it's implementing the project. And We've implemented uh, not just the elk program, but also other like turkeys and hams during holiday season. Also, we've created a gardening network of tribal homes on the reservation where we distributed uh, gardening beds or planter boxes to tribal households that were seeking a need. And that also included like the dirt, tools, seedlings, and, you know, a, a guide on how to, you know, just jump right into gardening also you know we we have focus on creating a tribal farm and i think you know whenever we implement these projects um, we look at the local food system and break it up into pieces and or like gears in a machine and we're slowly removing parts of that machine to have more self-sustaining efforts rather than being more dependent on on you know we understand that, you know, this reservation, the mission and Jocko Valley have a lot of uh, ranchers and farmers, you know, already existing here. But, you know, uh, we, we would really like to see 
tribal people really growing their own food. So um, there's a lot of you know ceremony that's involved when when tribal people get involved, and I think that's what's lacking at this time. You know, when as we go forward, uh, the system that we're creating, we're just trying to have more indigenous management. Yeah, no, it's it's truly inspiring and. With that work, do you have any, whether it's general or specific stories um, that you want to share of what that empowerment looks like? You know, when you witness folks being able to grow their own food or provide for their family, you know, what does that empowerment look like? Yeah, no, I mean, I see, I see, you know, from beginning to end, you know, like when we, when we go out, we advocate, you know, there's health disparities in Indian country, you know highest rates of heart disease, cancer, you know, all these different diseases uh, that, you know, kind of define who Native people are today. And then we see, you know, how did that happen? You know, broken treaties, you know, lack of respect from these outside, you know, um, non, non-Indian non governments, you know, dealing with apathy. How do we shift that message, that story? It's not really hard to see that, you know, Native people have been self-sustaining prior colonialism or prior, you know, this engagement with with the U.S. government or state governments. We can go back and we can see that uh, families were growing their own foods, hunting, gathering. This isn't something that is new to us. And so we have to re-educate our people. Sometimes that starts with people who want to become engaged or want to be, you know, at the driver's seat pushing these things. There's people who, you know, want to do it, but just, you know, don't have the means to do it. And then there's people who are just looking, you know, backwards and they're not even seeing, you know, what could be. And so it takes education with all with all different types of people. Um, not everyone who, you know, wants to get involved has the understanding of what it takes to, you know, be a leader in it and, and to make it sustainable. And so educating people on that, you know, um, you know, we value people who, who are inspired to do this work, you know, because it, it, it allows us to relieve some of our pressures and stuff, stuff from the work that we're doing. But also, you know, these people who are either, you know, lack um, access or just don't understand, um, a lot of that has to deal with, you know, those historical traumas and, and understanding transportation needs or financial needs are a major issue or assimilation, you know, cultural assimilation and not understanding that we did used to do those things. With apathy, I think when when we educate, and then that education is retained, that's where empowerment comes from. Is is knowing, you know, you can't undo knowing. And when people know, that's when the empowerment happens. And I've seen people, you know, get off of addiction, entering into a world of food sovereignty. And I think that's you know when we talk about those health disparities, that food sovereignty plays a major role in healing in our historical traumas. Powerful tool. And the program recently received grants through the First Nations Development Institute, which congratulations on that, much deserved. Do you want to share a little bit about any specific visions or goals that you guys have of what those grants will help to provide? Yeah, our, our first grant was, you know, kind of a grant that's focused on response to COVID. And so we're, we used it on our gardening bed program that helped carry out, you know, um, purchasing of transportation needs or um, any type of supplies that we needed for the project. These next two uh, grants are focused on our elk 
meat distribution, expanding the capacity of the program to take in more more animals uh, this year. Last year, we only were able to take up to 10. And so this uh, allows us to purchase uh, larger freezers and trailers and things like that. We're moving into creating more traditional meals for our participants, uh, processing the food in more traditional ways, uh, more traditional meals, including uh, traditional ingredients, things like that, into those meals. And so the grants that we got with First Nations are focused on traditional ecological knowledge and conservation of tribal lands, tribal plains lands, things like that. We're really using our our elk meat and deer meat uh, program as uh, a culling program in in identifying any chronic wasting disease or any other diseases that might be found in the local herds here. You know, part of it is getting the meat out um, to tribal members, but also, you know, identifying any risks in our herds. That's great. No, that encompasses so many different parts. It shows you that often this work is not always the straightforward work that folks might think of. It's all these behind the scenes or foundational work that's necessary as well, right? And can you tell me what is a a vision that you see that you continue to work towards, whether it's for this specific community or indigenous nations everywhere, you know, kind of the vision that you work towards of what a healthy, just, sustainable food system can look like in these communities? So um, People's Food Sovereignty Program, you know, is, it's an example. We, wanna, we want it to be an example to tribal governments or other uh, tribal organizations who are just getting into food sovereignty or just don't have a clear understanding of what food sovereignty is. We're offering a lens into this movement that isn't just solely grounded in, you know, a tribe's individual view on food sovereignty, but more of like a, a wider view about what food sovereignty is incorporating, you know, other tribal ways or, you know, um, cultures into this program. Like this college um, is a perfect example of like how there's like over 60 tribes that are represented each school year here at, at Salish Kootenai College, you know, in the development of my program, I create, you know, I brought in a lot of tribal perspective. There's a lot of uh, tribes uh, that came to school here that participated in volunteering and brought their, you know, their visions and, and ideas into um, what people's food sovereignty is. I think when we, we incorporate something that has a bigger lens we see that you know there's other tribes that were successful at agriculture or, or had um, communities that cared for each other in a way that was sustainable. That we can incorporate other stories um, into this into this effort. What I like to do is look at you know um, when we say indigenous, a lot of times we just uh, like to focus on indigenous people of North America, without recognizing other indigenous people of you know South America, Africa, Asia. Um, even Europe um, have indigenous people, and and their stories, their successes. I see I see a lot of indigenous people who, in regards to their assimilation timelines, or their colonialism on their lands, have been very resilient in keeping their culture intact, and have created uh, food systems that are mass distribution hubs for the whole world. That's what I see as indigenous people in, in North America or Turtle Island or United States is that we can we can look to those those successes in other indigenous communities around the world and we can create that here 
with you know the access to the natural foods that are born here and in, in, in Turtle Island, such as like wild rice or bison, those types of foods, huckleberries, all these all these different types of traditional native foods that it's a restoration of kind of our food system, but also a restoration of our culture. It creates um, economies from the ground up, puts people into work. And I think I think the biggest ultimate goal is just healing those historical traumas and and um, being resilient at it. And on that, what are some things that you see the need for to advance this kind of work? Um, you know, whether it's from tribal councils or community members or folks outside of the community um, or outside entities. What is needed for this work to move forward and really thrive? Yeah, um, there's a quote from John Echohawk. He's a, a leading a tribal lawyer. He founded Native American Rights Fund. He says that, you know, these food sovereignty efforts, they require um, support from, from tribal governments. And our, our elk program, our calling elk program, um, was in support uh, from CARES Act funding that the tribe um, received. And we created MOU um, in that partnership uh, for our first initial elk project. I think, you know, it's, it's been very difficult advocating food sovereignty to, you know, this tribe here. But, you know, the, the reception from the tribal membership um, doesn't al- always align with the the actions of the tribal council, and I think the power is in the people. And I think whenever you know, as we keep helping more and more tribal members, people are going to understand the importance of that message and are going to require that out of their leadership. You know, we we've been receiving a lot of uh, support from First Nations Development Institute um, as more tribal organizations at the national level uh, offer more support. Uh, Native American Ag Fund is a major uh, funding opportunity for for these efforts that we'll be reaching out and and hopefully receiving uh, funding through those. But I think, you know, when we talk about localization, it's it's really about those local support that we receive, even the ones that, you know, may not have a monetary price to it or a tag to it that, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears of our volunteers and and our donations from from local businesses and and organizations, you know, those those are you know our fuel to our program. You know, we appreciate all those all that support. I think it's continuing that part those partnerships that are created, understanding what we want locally. It's not just the tribal vision, but it's everybody who wants to assist in in creating something better. And how can we how can we do it together? And I know this will be customized for each community, you know, based on region and location and the, you know, cultural approaches and traditional foods of specific tribes. But what would be some words of advice or inspiration that you'd have for other tribal communities or communities in general that want to build up their own food sovereignty program? You know, whether that's realistic challenges that you've come up across that other folks might relate to and and hit a wall and get discouraged. Um, What are some words of advice that you have to get these things going? I think in the initial conversations of food sovereignty that we had with the community uh, and definitely understanding, you know, the current food system that exists, you know, the corporate you know, hold that it has on communities such as this. Definitely like, uh, you know, corporate potato or ranching or soybeans, things like that. 
where you know these a lot of, a lot of these lo- uh, local farmers or ranchers they receive subsidies or they receive funding from um, you know big egg who receives subsidies from the government and you know that makes them produce you know mass amounts of potatoes when they should be producing you know a variety of different vegetables for the local community and then whenever a person or an organization like people's food sovereignty comes up and says hey you should be you should change your model you know those restrictions that they have um, from their loans that they receive or the restrictions that you know big egg has on you know efforts like this to you know try to stifle them or try to make them you know non-successful those are some of the major um, obstacles or hurdles that we've ran into but i think you know again you know if and talking in terms of a, of a tribal perspective and you know and just being able to understand from my education that you know tribal self-determination is a major tool in a toolbox and you know, regardless of, you know, the politics that um, you may face or that we faced, is that understanding that, you know, what we're doing is not is not harmful. You know, what we're doing is helping people out. And so you know, using that understanding and keep going forward, not necessarily asking for permission anymore, but just working in a way that understands that, you know, we care. We're working in a way that tries to find solutions to a lot of the issues that are being faced right now and then that our participants know that they have another resource available to them. And did you want to mention what you were saying earlier about the need for processing facilities on the reservation? Yeah, so I mean just to touch on the needs of like our program, um, our elk and deer meat, there's a lack of processing facilities in the area. You know, when I first started this, I, I understood that there was at least one processor, meat processor, in every community along the highway. That, I think, you know, within the past 30, 40 years, that has changed. But, you know, as we experience solutions to food insecurity, you know, maybe creating some more processing plants, smaller processing plants um, in each community is something that, that is needed. And so we could really hunt 2,000 deer, but, you know, our understanding is, they would be processing them until probably next year. So, you know, it's a business that could be created, and it's just the lack of infrastructure that that is needed to carry it out. Hmm. Yeah, important messages for anyone out there that can help on that front. And you mentioned the creation of a tribal farm. That sounds really neat. Do you mind sharing about what the vision is that you have for that concept? So our tribal farm, you know, what we're trying to do is identify tribal trust land that kind of provides a program to feed the tribes, you know, uh, government programs, uh, the the schools, the hospitals, um, local households that is all grown from tribal labor. Um, also with our program, you know, we, we experience a lot of people who are um, uh, dealing with having to hold up their responsibilities for any crimes that they've committed or anything like that. And so we want to create a rehabilitation program for any um, any offenders to be able to come onto the farm to reduce their sentencing and or any type of um, other issues that they may have with the courts or anything like that but also provide you know an, an opportunity not just for that but uh, we want to create sustainable housing on the farm and, and a program that allows uh, we know that day labor in agriculture is a major part of that activity and and being able to offer this to people who are um, dealing with those issues, 
but also a solution to them to if they you know after they're done with their requirements that um, they have a position or employment with us if they'd like and and we want to provide them housing and, and food and you know other types of resources uh, so that they can get back on their feet um, if they choose you know to continue working with us you know that they'll have a bed but if they you know that they, if they choose to move on or want to you know become a manager in the program and you know get an education to provide better for their you know their life um, that they can do that with us so it's it's, it's a um, holistic kind of farm that's not just focused on food but it's um, growth of people too that's amazing that's really encompasses everything right that has been taken away not just connections with food but traditional you know family and community structures and connections that's really great and look forward to seeing that grow um and with this work and these concepts of indigenous self-determination you know there's so many elements that are all interconnected that you've made your life's work clearly and a big part of that being um, civic engagement and political advocacy. And with that, you co-founded with Alyssa Snow the Red Medicine LLC. Can you tell us about that work? And again, the gaps that you're seeing and the mission that you are trying to fill with that. Yeah, so uh, Red Medicine LLC um, was created out of an understanding of the lack of infrastructure that exists and civic engagement with our local, uh, state, and federal governments. Um, also, the infrastructure that is needed in communication between tribes, organizations, and policymakers. And it really came out of you know being on the ground at that advocacy level of getting getting out the vote to being a lobbyist at the state legislative session um, this last year, and you know that whole gamut of native civic engagement. You know, when we talk about Native Get Out the Vote in Montana, the Native voting block is super crucial to elections. It swings elections, um, being around 8% of the voting demographic of the state. You know, re- recreating the wheel every election cycle feels, you know, feels crazy. Then also understanding, you know, we need people at the front lines during the legislative session confronting these policymakers and a lot of their ignorant ideas or lack, you know, lack of education that, you know, there's a lot of things that are needed that Red Medicine, um, with our experience and knowledge, you know, can provide those services um, in those times of need. At the legislative session, we worked with the Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council uh, to put out a lot of uh, veto letters to Governor uh, Gianforte regarding like bison or voting rights issues and things like that or tribal sovereignty really and you know that wouldn't that wouldn't exist if we didn't uh, participate in that and so right now uh, red medicine is is engaged in the political side of things but you know also how can we create policy how can we help shape policy how can we collect data and things like that for tribal efforts whether it be you know tribal governments or we're hoping to work with the U of M's um, Tribal Policy Institute and, you know, being a, a guiding force in that relationship with tribal communities, tribal governments, really to bring their voices forward. So is that something that, say, tribal councils and other organizations or groups around the state can just contact you directly for that consultation? 
Yeah, we have, you know, because of our work and experience, we have a lot of relationships with um, tribal council members or state officials, tribal state officials, senators and house reps. We also work with, you know, organizations too, tribal organizations, um, if they have any needs for, um, you know, program development, strategic planning or anything like that. Um, we offer those services too as well. Yeah, just another, we're trying to be another tool and toolbox for, for the tribal communities in Montana. That's great. Such critical work. And can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like, you know, being present at the legislative session earlier this year? And I'm sure there are highs and lows, but, you know, specifically to what that experience was and moments of inspiration of witnessing, you know, other members of the Montana Indian Caucus from all over the state coming together to make things happen. Yeah, and I mean, stepping into into the session, realizing the the power that happens in that building, the power, you know, like the policies that have been implemented against tribal communities in the past, you know, um, our recognition and our ability to change policy that, you know, protects us, especially like uh, Article 10 of our Constitution and the protection of our you know, Indian education for all programs and things like that. Those are huge successes and, 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 you know, ground, you know, my understanding and like how things can get done in the state. Um, being able to, you know, step into the Native Caucus and assist them and, and, you know, their efforts as a lobbyist, you know, it felt like a family. There's a lot of house reps that have been there, you know, 20 plus years. And it felt like uh, I lost my grandparents at a relatively young age. So, being able to have, you know, elders and, you know, colleagues there that, that have that wisdom and knowledge, it's, it's, you know, that you can't put a price on it. It's, it's a, it's something that, you know, like, uh, helped shape me in such a, a small amount of time for me being there. There's a lot of companionship and even, you know, even between parties, you know, like when we step into that room, we're all Indian, you know, we're all tribal people and we're all advocating for tribal people through the state. And so parties, you know, we saw parties just thrown out the thrown out the door, um, you know, when we come to meet. A couple times uh, made them some uh, food for lunch. You know, the way I see the Native Caucus is kind of like uh, they're the warriors, you know, and every time they step out on, onto the floor or for votes, you know, they're, they're protecting us or they're voting for us and or speaking you know for us um, i've seen you know a lot of the ignorance or lack of education from a lot of the freshmen or you know just people who are you know have ways you know that they're trying to hurt natives in the state that you know like they say things or they do things that are totally inappropriate and and racist and if there weren't native people there that they would they would get away with it you know there was a lot of efforts to try to to out you know, the racism or out the hatred. An organization I work with, we put these, it's called Hate Free Zone placards on all the senators and House representatives' desks uh, just to send them a message, you know, like keep that stuff outside of this area. It's a battleground of ideas um, when you go there, and it's crucial that there's a native voice there. And I think, you know, um, whenever we come together, to stop like this last session session had to do more with protecting and stopping efforts and when we when we see tribal people come from you know all reservations and urban communities 
you know, to speak out against these bills or speak for these bills that, you know, we can make good things happen and, and power is in numbers. Mm, yeah. And for those of us who have not experienced that from inside those walls, you know, and just get a feel for it through newspaper articles and snippets, you know, that's that's the visual that I get is that it's truly a battleground of ideas coming to a head. And that visual of, you know, describing that caucus as the warriors walking into that room, it's powerful. You know, that's really neat to visualize that and and for you to witness that and to be a part of that well there's one instance where uh she's a house rep linda rexton from pulse and uh, she made a, a statement saying that native americans didn't pay taxes and um you know that drew a lot of criticism you know right when she said it you could hear it throughout you know throughout all the reps but uh, for representative tyson running well from uh blackfeet and glacier that uh you know he had to stand up and and really um tell her you know tell her the truth and i know like uh again that's an an experience that i have you know that's the type of you know uh, politics that one side wants to wants to portray themselves as and it's very destructive but you know having someone like tyson there to be able to speak out against it you know it would have made our ancestors proud for sure absolutely no it Shows you that all the years when that representation wasn't there, you know, that things like that or worse were said on the floor and then and there was no one there to correct it, you know, and then that's the narrative that moves forward. So just how important it is to have that representation for that purpose. Exactly. Um, and you've been active in Get Out the Vote for many years um, and you're now a political director for Indigenous Vote. If you can share a little bit about that work and the needs that you are witnessing in that front. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing get out the vote here on the Flathead reservation since 2016. When I first started, you know, the canvassing efforts or the door to door efforts, um, were just essentially new to me. They're more um, about theory. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, politicians was Paul Wellstone. Uh, he was a Senator from Minnesota. But if, you know, if anybody's, you know, politically involved and, and inspired, there's a show or a movie called Wellstone, a documentary called Wellstone. And it's available on YouTube uh, that just talks about his political style and uh, the way he engages with uh, the community. And he was a political scientist, too. So he had a, a knowledge about what's needed to ensure that you speak for your constituency. And I've used, you know, that style and how I approach get out the vote here in tribal communities in terms of having to meet people, um, you know, because of COVID, we necessarily, you know, we've had to kind of slow our shaking of hands, but, you know, the power of meeting people and, and, and that first introduction and being able to conversate and, and find middle ground is powerful. You know, that's kind of like uh, with our get out the vote efforts here, I value the door knocking and the canvassing and the being able to meet with the people because a lot of these, a lot of people, a lot of tribal community members, you know, lack care from, from people, you know, and some people, you know, just don't have people that are visiting with them, you know, and that human connection. And so that's another thing that we provide is, you know, that uh, human to human connection and, and being able to say, you know, I'm here. I've, I've met you where you're at and I'm listening to you. Please tell me, you know, please tell me what's your concerns in this world, which a lot of people, you know, just 
don't have that. You know, a lot of people, tribal or non-tribal, don't. You know, a lot of people just don't ask them how they're feeling. I think that that relationship building. You know, again, the community knows that we care about them, and being able to carry you know those stories that of people that we've met on this on on the road you know in this new position as a political director for indigenous vote it's not it's not theory about getting out the vote for us it's knowing you know these stories that we have and the people that are hurting you know the people that that need health care you know or want better education for their children or you know don't want to experience a world of hate you know, those, that's the that's you know the issues and topics that you know we bring to um, our politicians or the tables you know of decision making that you know that we participate in. It's not us or our organization per se that's sitting at that table, but it's everybody that that we've spoke to. We're bringing them with us. Yeah, it's that authentic, true representation and kind of what that should be looking like across the board, right? Um, and you know, just last year with the 2020 election, you guys were out knocking on doors from sun up past sundown, you know, in all weathers and blizzards. And um, if you can just kind of paint the picture of what that work entails, you know, and getting out there and getting face to face with folks. So our get out the vote efforts, you know, the Flathead Reservation is the 10th largest reservation in the United States. It's almost the size of Rhode Island. You know, there's eight separate uh, communities or cities, you know, townships on the reservation. And yet each community is different. I'll give you an example. So Polson, you know, is the largest community, but it holds tribal people such as Turtle Lake or, you know, scattered around the city. There's, you know, tribal people living there, Um, but it's mostly a non-tribal demographic, you know, compared to like Arlie, who has a, a strong, or Elmo. You know, St. Ignatius has a has a large Native population, but, you know, there's a lot of historical traumas dealing with the church and things like that there. So each community is a lot different. We've knocked over a 1,000-plus doors here on the reservation every cycle. Our biggest thing is trying to identify tribal households that aren't in tribal trust lands, you know, identifying those gray areas. But, you know, each each house is different, and, you know, one may be totally accepting to our efforts while others are facing you know horrible traumas drug abuse or whatever and you know we're having to combat all those ills as well as education and empowerment you know it's it's awesome when we can get that you know connect with those people and get them to move away from that apathy but a lot of times you know it's it's dealing with people who just haven't had the best shake in this world and just don't trust anybody, you know. And uh, those are the people that it takes uh, more than a couple times, takes a few times to go back, you know, recommit ourselves to, to them, you know, and where they're at, meeting them where they're at. Also, like, uh, it's a joke in, in getting out the vote effort or, like, the community about uh, reservation dogs and res dogs. You know, there's, you know, Blackfeet Reservation has dogs running all, all around and I've knocked doors there and, they'll follow you, you know, and they'll become partners in the effort. You know, sometimes you got to, like, bring around red ring baloney just to, you know, get the dogs off your off your case. You know, there's a lot of different obstacles or things that you, you experience in the field. And I'm lucky that I'm a semi-dog whisperer, and a lot of the dogs don't, don't mind me. Or... It's an important part of the work. <laughs> <laughs> and on that 
tell me in your own words this importance of whether it's civic engagement or policy or food sovereignty you know the significance of having this work be locally led you know from folks within that community and not an outside entity telling you what you need or what would be best for you you know of someone from within the community truly leading the efforts i would say you know from the ground up perspective you know you you live with the people you know that are, that are experiencing those needs or whatever advocacy that you're doing that you you can put a face to it it's not just a number also understanding the resources that are available to you in those communities knowing your partners you know knowing the infrastructure that you you know that is available to you and i think i mean the relationship i think is the most important thing is just you know having that relationship to your to the land and the the community when people are making decisions you know at that at that leadership level and they don't have that grounding um it's like choosing what color paint you want in a room that you're not going to live in yeah it just takes more ground ground up leadership i think in any effort to be more successful for sure no it's just essential and even knowing what those needs are right and the underlayers of what works best to address those issues and any other messages that you want to get out to your community here you know on the flathead reservation whether that's in regards to political engagement or get out the vote or food sovereignty you know any final messages that you want to share <laughs> yeah uh, I mean, just, I mean, continue just to help, you know, the support that we have and, and uh, the participants in our programs, you know, those, those are what keep us going. And so we appreciate all that. And we ask for that continuing partnership going forward. In 2018, we brought Adam Beach here and had a, uh, Adam Beach as an actor. He acted in Smoke Signals or Suicide Squad, if you've seen the first one. You know, there's these, like, activities that we do that bring out the community and brings out, you know, 400-plus people where we had to almost shut the building down because we met capacity. When we get the community that involved and that excited, it's something that, you know, that we're looking forward to doing again this um, this next election cycle. And so just, you know, you know, pay attention to our social media pages. Reach out to me if you, you know, want to get involved, if you want to participate in our Dear Elk Me program, just reach out to People's Food Sovereignty Program on Facebook or Instagram or email, People's Food Sovereignty Program at gmail.com. You know, any tribal leadership out there, organizations who want to work with Red Medicine, ready, available. You know, as a younger indigenous person, a father, um, a husband, you know, it's time for us to take the reins, you know, as, as leaders in our community and you know, with, with children, you know, really shape the world that we want for them. My understanding of self-determination is not necessarily always asking for permission, but just doing it because it's what it's what it, what needs to get done. And I think, you know, my grandparents, my grandma, she, you know, she said, I think that says, you know, just do what needs to get done. And so we'll continue to do that and uh, just, just look out for us, pray for us. Mm, absolutely. And any final messages for non-Native folks where there may be partnerships, you know, just messages for how those partnerships can go forward in a good, functional way? You know, living in such a contrasting community and definitely of the, non, the non-tribal community, understanding, you know, like one side, you know, is following this new wave of politics that 
there are balanced-minded people out there who want peace, and they need to start speaking up louder than the people who are creating this, you know, these contentions in our communities. Be a louder voice, you know, with, you know, the tribal communities and our needs and wants that there are people in Montana who share those ideas too. And if we work together, we can diminish any of those negative voices. A huge thank you to Patrick for taking the time to speak with us. You can follow the work of the People's Food Sovereignty Program or contact them about volunteering or supporting the work on Facebook and Instagram at People's Food Sovereignty Program. If you're interested in working with Red Medicine LLC, you can find out more on Facebook at Red Medicine LLC, find out more about Indigenous Vote at indigenousvote.org, or follow them on Facebook and Instagram. We'll have all of these links on the show notes for today's episode. And in the season of year-end giving, those are three organizations to support with local leadership and big impact. And just a message for non-Native folks such as myself. As we go forward in our work to support and encourage more just, healthy systems, whether in your personal or professional spaces, that it's not about making a seat at your table but rather showing up to somebody else's table and putting yourself at the service of the wonderful community-led work that's already taking place. Thank you all so much for listening. This podcast was recorded and edited on the homelands of the Salish, Kalispe, and Kootenai peoples. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. We also greatly appreciate it if you can leave a review. It helps folks to find our episodes. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you so much for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.